Hey folks, thanks for checking out Missio Church in Niner, Iowa. You are listening to audio recorded at our Sunday morning service. If you'd like any more information on the gospel or would like to learn more about Missio Church, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Missio Mount Air. We'll get right into it. We um, are preaching through the book of Genesis here at Missio. Uh, one of our convictions is that this book is the, as, as Tony prayed, this is God has revealed himself to us. This book uh, is not just uh, tidbits of information or cute tips. This is the very living word of God. And so we want to be a church that sits underneath this book. And so one of the best ways uh, we think to get to, to understand this is not every Sunday Jim or I or whoever kind of picks the next fancy verse to go to that we seem to like, but we systematically go through books of the Bible, letting the Spirit lead, letting the providence of God work and leading us to the next text. So we just go to the next text. If you've been around any of our missional communities or Bible studies that we'll do together, many times, I would say the bulk of the time, 80% of the time, our Bible studies are just, let's start a book of the Bible and work our way through it and let God's word do its work. And so we do that here, and we are now uh, 22 sermons into Genesis, in the 18th chapter is where we are at. So we'll be in Genesis 18, verses 1 through uh, 15. I invite you to get your copy of God's word, turn there as well. Genesis 18, verses 1 through 15. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. While I bring a morsel of bread, that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three sayas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to the young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared, and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah your wife shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah so Sarah laughed to herself saying after I am worn out and my Lord is old shall I have pleasure the Lord said to Abraham why did Sarah laugh and say shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old is anything too hard for the Lord at the appointed time I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. Grass withers, the flower fades, 
The word of our God stands forever. So our narrative this morning begins with an interesting sort of dinner date. Uh, And now a a dinner, a meal shared in scripture is not that unique of an event. They are interesting things to pictures of great moments of celebration and eating together. And in in the biblical storyline, this happens quite a lot. There are many things accomplished around meals in the scriptures. Um, there's likely just some cultural reality going on here of sharing a meal with visitors who come through, but there also is just some human reality that sharing a meal with others can be an intimate sign of friendship, that you're extending uh, grace, you're extending uh, just good to those who would come by. And Abraham, in a very gracious, gratuitous moment, these strangers come by and he shares his life with these strangers and it communicates something very strongly this is what we see in genesis chapter 18 it, there's there's this friendship meal going on there's communion you could say which is interesting we just kind of talked about baptism and it's and it's a uh, familiarity with uh, spiritual circumcision last week and now we have a meal shared between friends but this is this chapter which which is a distinct narrative Um, It opens up with the Lord showing up to Abraham, seemingly the Lord with two other individuals with him. And so it takes this friendship meal kind of to a next level. Uh, It's not just that this is an interesting event, but, but it's who is there at this meal. Three individuals show up and Abraham addresses them as the Lord with, with a couple of other individuals, at least with him. Now, If you want to kind of geek out on this and go home and get all your commentaries out and read up on who in the world these three people are, there is plenty to read of speculation on who the three individuals are. Some see uh, foreshadowing of the Trinity, right? We are a monotheistic religion. We believe in one God. There is one God uh, over all creation, but we also are believe in a trinity, that within this one being, he is one in essence and three in persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And that's been revealed to us in the pages of Scripture. And so some people see a foreshadowing maybe of, is this the trinity? There's three guys that show up. And there's a lot of people that, that talk a lot about that. But... Though that's interesting, I I just share that because it's out there. It does seem like in this next narrative, when you go on down with the Sodom and Gomorrah passage, two of the angels go uh, go to Sodom. And they're there in Sodom and, and, and have all the events that go on with them there in Sodom. And seemingly the third member of this party is, has disappeared. But, and so it seems like more accurate understanding would be that this is somehow, this is a Christophany of some sort. Jesus maybe himself in his pre-incarnate state is here. We know that someone of deity is here because if you look at it, and you, and you go on down past where we read this morning, but we talk in the, in the revelation of what's going to happen at, at Sodom. The Lord says that this is what he is going to do. In verse 17, if you're still in your Bible, right, you look at verse 17. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Now, an angel doesn't talk that way. <laughs> this is, these three individuals have this conversation. Shall I tell Abraham what I'm about to do? Angels don't do that. Angels hear and they obey. But this is something that this divine person is doing. 
So there is someone very exalted, a very big deal, <laughs> right here with Abraham, and then seemingly at probably a couple of very mighty angels there with him that actually meet with Abraham. So that's incredible, and I'm not entirely sure the, the who and the how, but those aren't as important to the narrative. What is important is that it did happen, that the Lord, by Abraham's expression, and these three individuals, angels as well, they show up to meet with Abraham. They have a meal. They get down in the dirt, if you will, to speak with his people. Now, we tend to, to hesitate and, and be cautious when it comes to my, my exemplary exegesis, which is um, looking at Scripture just for examples. Like, some people read their Bibles only this way, as though it's only exemplary exegesis, exegesis to, to draw out. And so you're only drawing out examples. And like you look through your Bible and you try to find the good examples and follow them, and you try to find the bad examples and avoid them. And that's just try to be good and, be, and don't be bad. And what we know is that that actually, in the end, actually Romans 7 was a great text on that, that all that ends up doing is crushing you. <laughs> because becoming an awareness of what you should do and what you shouldn't do doesn't actually help you. It just, all, all it helps you know is, is know when you, how messed up you really are. That's all that that sort of understanding really does for you. So while we caution against just doing exemplary exegesis, there is time, there are times that we do want to see the, the attitude of those from Scripture and let it guide us. We like to emphasize here that there is only one who lived perfectly righteously, and his name is Jesus. And our main call to those who would hear us is not get to work trying to be good and stop being bad and maybe God's favor will shine upon you. Our call to you is that you've already messed that up. <laughs> we all mess that up. And the only hope that we have is not to look deeper into ourselves or to kind of pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and get better. Our only hope is to look away from ourselves to the one who has lived the righteous life we should have lived and died the death that we deserve so that every one of us in this room this morning, turning from our sins, looking to Christ in faith, would be made righteous, would be set right with God. We look away from ourselves to Jesus, the one who has done it perfectly. However, that is not to say there are not times that we ought to emulate those who have gone before us. In fact, Hebrews 13:7 says this very thing, right? It says, remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Paul does this very thing in Romans chapter 4, which we're going to hear a sermon on here in a few weeks, that he emphasizes, look at Abraham's faith, how that's to be an example for us to, to believe. And in fact, just a, a few chapters, a few verses earlier in Hebrews chapter 13, the call to show hospitality to strangers, it says, uh, actually, you know, since we're here, let's just turn to Hebrews 13. Maybe you should look at this. I don't make, I, I baby you all too much. I don't make you turn around in your Bibles enough. Hebrews chapter 13, instead of just reading it for you, uh, verse uh, 7 says that, but look up at verse 2, excuse me, starting in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. And then verse 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Now, I think that that's actually a callback to this event, that Abraham 
seeing these three individuals didn't necessarily know who they were. Some people would say because he calls them Lord, he knew who they were. Maybe he had met, he had this earlier encounter. Maybe he knew, but maybe it was just another way of saying my Lord, like it was a, a title of respect to these strangers who have showed up. But Abraham extends hospitality and by so doing entertains angels. And so Abraham is, is doing this, uh, this incredible act of kindness to those who show up on his doorstep. Abraham asks him to wait while he gets water. It's, it's kind of funny if you look at the text. I mean, he says, uh, wait here, let a little water be brought. Wash your feet and rest yourselves. I'll bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And then you can pass on. And then what does he do? He takes off. He says, Sarah, get three baskets of flour. Make loaves of bread. Let me go get the, the calf. We're going to kill it. Let me get curds. I mean, I know we, we all love our curds, right? Whatever that is. Uh, the curds and whey. It is, I mean, it's, it's a little different than our cottage cheese today, but it's kind of the same idea. It's the, it's the good part of the milk. Right? He's bringing the good, fatty, delicious part of the milk. He's going to get the curds and he's going to get all of this great food to bring out to them to serve them this incredible meal. Now, I think it's clear that Abraham uh, honored our fifth discipleship outcome. He stewarded his life generously. Do you not think so? You know, our five discipleship outcomes ends with stewarding all of life generously. I'm just kidding. We, I, I don't think Abraham necessarily knew that, but he, he is this example of stewarding his life generously. So that's the narrative uh, uh, the, of the meal. And then we go into this interesting dialogue from the, the, the people who are the visitors who are there, the Lord himself and Abraham. What are we seeing here? Okay, here's the facts. This is what happens. Here's a few interesting theological things. How does that, I mean, what is that, what is really the point? What do we see here? Is this just some weird random event? Like God shows up with a few angels and has a meal with Abraham. Okay, that's great. What does that even mean? How, can, how does that even matter? Um, this is communicating something to us very unique, but also very but wonder, wonderful. We have heard and seen much about God and his transcendent authority, right? Just 18 chapters earlier, God in the nothingness speaks and makes everything. <laughs> Mankind plunges himself into sin and rebellion and this God rains a deluge upon the world to flood out all of humanity except Noah and his family. We see this in transcendent, powerful, mighty God who does these amazing just awe-inspiring works that God has made. Think about the gratuity of God, that when he creates beetles, he doesn't create a beetle, he creates tens of thousands of different kinds of beetles. And if you want to know how many there are, get a pool, put it in your backyard, and you get all kinds of different beetles that just show up. Look at this wonderful creation. Uh, but God is gratuitous, and just his majesty and his ability, this transcendent awesome God. It's not hard to get the idea of a huge, transcendent, over it all, impossibly powerful, completely independent God. It wasn't like he took something to make these things. He made everything out of nothing. He has no need. He's totally independent. It's, it's not hard to get that picture. But what we see here is that this transcendent God is also 
imminent. He's also close. Think about the God who made the worlds by the word of his power, bothering to show up and share a meal with someone that he had created. (laughs) Not only is he huge, what's so incredible about the God of the Bible is that not only is he transcendent and huge, he's also imminent, he's also close. He is actively and intimately involved in his world. We do not live in a closed system. This is, this is important for our worldview, our, our, the way we think the world works. We are not just a ball of mass that's rotating around a sun and a solar system and a galaxy that is just totally dependent upon natural forces continuing to go and burning themselves out, and that's just, that's all there is. That's a worldview today. It's not the worldview of the Bible. It is much, we live in an open system where the God who actually set this earth rotating and put the sun in the middle and all this spinning around it and threw all the, the, speaking of gratuity, the uncountable stars and galaxies that are out there, that God who did all of that is still involved in his world, still is intimately cares about his creation. We're not deists that God spun it into existence and say, well, good luck, there you go, hope it goes well. He's actually involved in the world that he has made. He he is the God who made it all, but he also oversees it all. He provides for it all. He guides it all. He holds it all together. He gets his hands dirty, if you will. So we move then into this conversation that happens around this meal. The promise of Isaac is given again, right? We've seen this a few times that Abram is going to have a seed. It's going to come from Sarah. Abraham, just a few weeks ago, he kind of, he laughs himself at the incredible, the very thought that, that he and Sarah are going to have a child. And here, this promise of Isaac is given again, but not just in generalities. Hey, this is going to happen. Don't forget, within the year, I'm going to return and Sarah's going to have a child, which means she's going to get pregnant very soon. I assume this still takes the 40 weeks of gestation, that means if in 52 weeks, assuming they have a calendar similar to ours, yada, 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 that that she's going to be with child very soon. Very soon. Now, this this text here makes the point that time has gone on, right? We remember back in 11, the end of chapter 11, the point is made, very few description is given of Sarah. She's beautiful. Princess is her name. But it's one of the few descriptions that it gives is that Sarah is barren. She has no children. She's now getting up in years, right? Abram's 99, she's 80, they're, they're old. The text says they're old. Don't get mad at me. I'm not being an ageist. The text says they're old. But not only is she barren, the text says that she also has passed the way of women, which all of us who've taken our high school anatomy, we know what that means. There's no, she's, she has no ability to produce children anymore. Not only has she not produced any even the possibility, they're not ignorant of how this sort of works. You know, the, the, even that possibility is gone from her. She is beyond the way of women. Her, her, the ability of her body to make babies has ceased. A child coming from Sarah has ceased to be any sort of reasonable expectation. <laughs> that without the presence of a miracle, this is not going to happen. Unless God moves, this is not going to happen. And that really, I think, is the emphasis of this text. Took us a little while to get there. This, I think, is the emphasis of this text. Sarah laughs. 
not necessarily a good laugh. It's kind of more of a skeptical laugh, like, are you for real? And she denies. We know it's not a good laugh because she denies it. It wasn't like she was happy. This is great. It was like, yeah, right. And, and, and God calls her on it and doesn't let her get away from it. Because, and Isaac's name actually is Laughter which comes for a couple of reasons. One is the laughter over the joy of him being born. But I think there is an element of Sarah needing to remember her skepticism over God and him following through on his promises despite her own skepticism. It's really it's phenomenal. So, but focus in with me now in our remaining time on what I think is worth highlighting in this passage. Verse 14 of chapter 18, God asks a question. And when God asks a question, I don't know, maybe you should listen. It leads up to it in verse 13. The Lord said to Abraham, Why does Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Verse 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard? Why would Sarah be skeptical? This is the God who set the world into motion, who made all those different annoying little beetles. This is that same God who can do all of these incredible things, is anything too hard for the Lord? Now, this is a major theme in our scriptures. If you mark this down and you read through it, you start finding these passages where it's brought up about the impossibility of a, of a certain child or of a certain event happening and an impossible set of circumstances, um, prophets being surrounded by enemies and then eyes being opened to see the incredible host of angels that are there with them, that all these impossible circumstances come, a, come, a, come a, uh, to God's people and then they somehow get delivered because we're learning again and again and again. Is anything too hard for the Lord? This is a constant refrain we're going to hear as we read through our Bibles. This will not be the first miraculous birth even in Scripture. There's a really important one coming up <laughs> in a few thousand years. There's another really important miraculous birth coming up, but neither is this the last incredible miracle God is going to work in His dealings with His people. One commentator I read this week says, For the Lord, nothing is too extraordinary. He delights in doing that which is impossible, marvelous, even surpassing our understanding. But why would God choose to work this way? Why? Through the impossible. Because as that same commentator said, the Lord chose to do the impossible because the promised seed was to be known as the Lord's provision. Why is he doing it this way? So that Abraham and Sarah know that this is nothing out of them. The salvation, this blessing, this, this coming seed. You go back to Genesis 3.15, right? The proto-euangelion, the first gospel that from either a son is going to come who is going to bruise the serpent's head and be bruised in his heel. This promised future is coming. And these, these miraculous events, why are they happening? Why is God doing it this way? So that when they happen, it will be known beyond a question. It is God that has done this, not man. Not man and his creativity and his good thinking. That was Ishmael. That was their creative, like, let's solve the problem this way. No, God works through these impossible means because it is to be known by his people that it is God, is the, that God is the one who has provided. God moves this way through incredible circumstances for quite a few reasons. Some of them is to bolster the faith of his people. When you look and read your Bible, don't get so, don't read this like this, some disconnected fairy tale. This is history. This is what has happened in the life of God's people. That this birth of Isaac from a dead womb happens <laughs> in real space-time existence. 
And God does this and records it for us and tells us about it to bolster our faith that we might remember and believe in a God who, for whom nothing is impossible. He does this to prove his faithfulness that we might know he does make good on his promises. And he does it to magnify his power and his glory. The child of promise, this Isaac, spoiler alert, if you read ahead the rest of the next chapter, Isaac is born within the year. He makes good on his promise. I don't want to ruin it for you, uh, but if you haven't, go ahead and read it this afternoon. Isaac is born within the year. Child of laughter, and he's named Isaac. It's incredible. But let's go to the anti-type. These are all types. Let's just jump. We're going to jump all over all of the, you're welcome. We're going to jump all over, over all the types, and let's look at the anti-type. Luke chapter 1. This very same sentence, very same refrain, comes at a very, another very important miraculous birth. In Luke chapter 1, you should know this narrative. We read it around a certain time of the year. Verse 35, this is the conversation between Mary and the angel. And Mary, in verse 34, asks the angel, when it's been promised that she's going to bear a child, he'll be called the Son of the Most High God. How can this be since I'm a virgin, she says. The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Behold, your relative Elizabeth, another miraculous birth, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. There's another incredible miraculous birth. Verse 37, For nothing will be impossible with God. You don't have to be a biblical like a genius to hear the similarities. <laughs> Nothing will be impossible with God. This is a foreshadowing of this one meaningful, very meaningful birth. That not only not it's not that Mary is barren and, and passed away of women, but she's never known a man. And yet God's going to overshadow her, and by a proof of his power, is going to produce this offspring. Why? Because nothing is impossible. For God, We learn that with God, all things are possible. So now, what do we then do with this today? How does this apply to us today? Ought we just to think, maybe we, so if nothing's impossible for God, let's go back to our youth group days, right? And we're so, or go back to, okay, so let's just think of the most crazy thing God could ever do and then expect him to do it because it says nothing's impossible for God. So let's just think of the most radical whatever, and then nothing's too hard for God, therefore he should do it. And let's, let, you know, let's, let's talk about it and pray about it and all these things. What, is that the way that we should do this? Because, you know, well, nothing's impossible for God, and so maybe these incredible things all ought to happen because they could happen with God's power. What's a really impressive feat for you? What, what's something that really makes you, that is just screams incredible or impresses you, that you think, that's, that's really impressive. That's, that's, I can't believe that's happening. What would you consider to be miraculous? Incredible healings? Exceptional control over the weather? What if, Rich, we didn't have to pray for rain, we just commanded it to come? <laughs> Would that be pretty miraculous? Nothing's impossible for God, right? So maybe that's what, in fact, Jesus walks on the earth and he does that, right? He commands the weather. Maybe this is the kind of miraculous, exceptional control over the weather, incredible healings, never having to go to the doctor again. You know, you go and you get a scan and they say something's going on and you just say, no, it's not. And you get rid of it and you're healed and it's done. 
Every time, without fail, because nothing's impossible with God. Is that what this is talking about? Every miracle, I want us to try to think of something a little deeper this morning. <laughs> a little deeper than that. Every, because every miracle that could be performed in this life will only be a miracle for this life. You think about something as incredible as the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And think of how many loved ones maybe that you've said goodbye to that you would love to have back. <laughs> they would only come back, and Lazarus came back just to die again. He's not here today. He, he was miraculously brought back to life, but he did then die. It was truly incredible and miraculous that he was raised to life, but he was then left in the position to just die again. Part of the reason why we immediately think of God doing something miraculous in this life is because the most miraculous thing we can think of is because, is because we are so attached to this life. We're so attached to this life, to this existence. We put categories of miraculous into what, it may, what he can do in this world, in this time. But turn with me to a different perspective in Luke chapter 10. I said we were closing. I, I lied. We're getting there. Luke chapter 10. Now we're getting closer. <laughs> Luke chapter 10, verse 17 Jesus sends out the disciples, right? 72, they go out empowered by Jesus, performing miracles. He's sending out the demons, healing the sick, doing incredible works. 72 return, verse 17 in chapter 10 of the Gospel of Luke. The 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. He said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, verse 20, don't stop there. Nevertheless, he says, as impressive as all of that may be, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are are written in heaven. What's the miracle that Jesus sees for the disciples? It isn't the serpents and scorpions. It isn't the sending out of the demons. It's that they could be in good standing, in right fellowship with their maker. That, for Jesus to his disciples, that's miraculous. That's something worth rejoicing over. A, a miracle here on this earth, yeah, okay, it's, it's, those are great in their place, but he is saying what you ought to rejoice over is that your names are written in heaven. You have right standing that they being sinners justly under the wrath of God might have that forgiven and being ushered into the presence of God. Their names are recorded with their Father in heaven. That is what is truly miraculous. When we start talking about our God being the God who accomplishes the impossible, this ought to be top of our list. That he takes dead sinners and brings them to life. He takes sinful humanity, charging in rebellion away from him, hating him and all that he does, hearts of stone turned against him, and he breaks their hearts of stone brings repentance in their hearts and turns them back to him in faith and sets them right with himself, that is truly incredible. 
That is truly incredible. That he would take dead hearts, bring them to life, giving them new and deeper joys, giving them new and better loves and desires, that he would welcome them into eternal life with himself. That is incredible. And it's exactly what John is astonished at in the writer of his first letter. You don't have to turn to this one. 1 John 3, 1, where he says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us. What's he astonished by? He's like, it's, a, it's an interesting statement in the Greek. It's like, look how amazing. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. And what is it? That we should be called the children of God. <laughs> That's what he's marveled at. It is this miraculous event then that puts all else in its place. I want you to see something. The miraculous birth of Isaac is not the most miraculous reality in Abraham's life. That's incredible. This, when we talk about Abraham, how incredible it is that at 99, he fathered a child with Sarah, who was well past her prime as well. What a miracle. The miracle of Abraham's life is not found there. The miraculous moment is that of the birth of Isaac is just pointing to a previous more miraculous reality. And it's found in Genesis 15, 6, right? Where Abraham believes God's promises to him and it is counted to him as righteousness. That's the miracle that the New Testament can't stop talking about. It mentions Isaac, sure, but what it's blown away by is that Abraham would believe God and then be counted righteous. That's bonkers. That a sinner in Ur of the Chaldeans would be called out, would hear God's call and respond and be brought to life. That is the miracle in Abraham's life. That is the miracle. The truly incredible miracle is that when God made his promise to Abram and he believed it, God counted him as righteous. He was given right standing with this holy and awesome God. Sometimes this statement that nothing is impossible with God can end up just being really disappointing and discouraging statement because you think of all the things that you would like to have had him uh, do something different on. In this fallen world, and, and you know, why is, why is it disappointing and discouraging? Because in this fallen world, not all of the miracles that we would like to see happen get fulfilled. Our loved ones die before we would like them to. Sickness and disease still plague us and they don't miraculously always disappear. The provision for our families comes from a lot of sweat and toil, not miraculous, just bounty. God in his good wisdom does not ordain every miracle that we would like to see take place. And we really don't have a complete answer as to why. I assume it's because we wouldn't be able to really get what God is doing to understand why it is the way that it is. But he has promised to those who are his that he is working all things together for their good. He has promised that these light and momentary afflictions, which is a loaded statement, but Paul says it, and you think of his life, not light and momentary afflict, no momentarily afflicted, are preparing for us a greater weight of glory than we could imagine. He has promised, God has promised that those who are his will not be put to shame on that great final day. He has promised a good finish for his children. So what do we rejoice in? When we hear nothing is impossible for God, what do we rejoice in? We ought to rejoice in the same incredible miracle that Abraham rejoiced in. That through Jesus Christ, this coming seed, the true seed of Abraham, we can be put in right relationship with our creator. This is our grounding hope. 
and the miraculous joy of our lives. And knowing this, that no matter how this brief span of 70 to 80 years that we get here is, no matter what, no matter the ups and downs of this life, what God has done in reconciling our people to himself is he has secured them to himself for forever. And the great day of the Lord is coming when Christ will return, set up his new kingdom, on, uh, that new heavens and new earth, and all who are his by faith in Christ will be with him forever. This is the eternal hope and joy that we live with. This is the miracle that we rejoice in, that God would take sinners and make them his children. Let's pray. God, give us eyes to see this. I pray for any heart in this place this morning that maybe doesn't know you in this way, that is, is, is looking at you from a distance and, and, and curious, but not, not sure if, if the Christianity is for them. God, I, I pray that right now you would give eyes of faith. God, help us to see Help it to be made clear what Christ has done. What the, the incredible privilege that it would be to be forgiven of our sin and made right with you. And how that is all possible through faith in the, the true seed of Abraham, your son, Jesus Christ. God, for those of us who have trusted you, who have been adopted into your family, who have been... Who have been redeemed and embraced this glorious gospel truth. Father, would you just restore to us, as, as David writes in Psalm 51, restore to us the joy of that salvation, that God, we have such a firm foundation and a God who loved us so much that he sent his one and only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And God, may that ground our hearts, that great miracle, miracle of all miracles, that we could be brought back into good fellowship with our Creator, that that would be our grounding hope as we weather life in this sinful, broken world, waiting for that great day when you make all things new. God, break our hearts before you in repentance and birth faith and renew faith in all that you are for us in your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.